Welcome to our podcast, where I, Keely Severson, Eric Johnson, and Alicia Swamy are exposing more. Today, we are here with Dr. Jabin Moore. Dr. Jabin Moore is a National Board Certified Chiropractic Physician and an Acupuncturist as well. He practices functional medicine looking specifically for the root causes of illness and treating them through natural protocols. Dr. Jabin knows better than anyone that reversing chronic disease takes time, persistence, and a lot of detective work. He uses a wide range of tools to find out what's really contributing to chronic health conditions and healing the cause, not just the symptoms. Dr. Moore's professional and postdoctoral training includes true cellular healing. Dr. Moore's professional and postdoctoral training includes true cellular healing. Chiropractic plus kinesiology, applied and clinical kinesiology, bioresonance therapy, sacro-occipital techniques, nutrition, rehabilitation, functional medicine, and blood laboratory analyses. He's also taking courses on mastering functional blood chemistry, mastering the thyroid and brain chemistry, and has trained with several Lyme disease and parasitology experts. This podcast is brought to you by Michael Rubino, The Mold Medic, and All-American Restoration the first and only mold remediation company in the country specializing in remediating mold for people with underlying health conditions or mold sensitivities. They've quickly become the most recommended remediation company from doctors and mold inspectors nationwide. Check out our show notes to pick up your copy of Michael Rubino's book, The Mold Medic, an expert guide on mold remediation, or visit allamericanrestoration.com to get your home assessed and get your health back on track today. This podcast is brought to you by My Myco Lab. Are you sick and tired of being sick and tired all of the time? Have you gone from doctor to doctor, had lots of tests, tried many medications, vitamins, supplements, and still feel awful? You and many others like you could be suffering from exposure to molds and mycotoxins where you live or where you work. My MycoLab specializes in the most precise form of mycotoxin testing by analyzing a patient's IgG and IgE antibodies in a blood serum sample, producing accurate results you can trust. Visit MyMycoLab.com to order your test today. Dr. Moore, right before we began recording, you were about to share your story. You, you said you were diagnosed with Lyme. I was, yeah. So I, and, and this all actually will take back to mold, which I just discovered, you know, like 15 years later. But uh, I was in school, undergrad. I was a college athlete. I was 250 pounds, throwing shot put, muscular, felt like I was on top of the world. But everything kind of just stopped progressing. My athletic career kind of just paused. I just stayed where I was. I didn't necessarily get a lot worse, but joint pain was getting worse. I wasn't quite thinking as clearly as I'd like to. And to make this really long story short, I was living in a super moldy basement. And I never even thought about this until just maybe within the last year. But after moving out of that basement, I lost some weight, erectile dysfunction started, body just kind of started shutting down while I was going through professional school. And yeah, I I got on this Lyme journey because somebody told me to look into Lyme as a possibility of why I was feeling the way I was because I'm here in the Midwest. I get bit by ticks, mosquitoes, I'm outside all the time. I'm I'm an outdoor guy, but 
we never thought about mold because I didn't even think about mold back then. Like even the Lyme doctors didn't think about mold back then. I wasn't living in that place any longer, but that's where it all began. And then, uh, you know, we, we had talked about before this podcast started, you know, what was my specialty areas? And you asked if it was pediatrics. I'm like, well, no, not technically. I actually got into pans, pandas and autism because I was working on a dad who had Lyme, he got better after trying so many different people. And he's like, can you help my kid? He's autistic. And I just said, no. I was like, I have no idea what I would be doing there. I was like, what I do is I I look at what root causes are. We try to remove those. We try to optimize the body beyond that. And he's like, well, can you do that for my kid? And I said, well, sure. I, I mean, I can look at it like that and we can try. And we started having success. And from there came Pan's Pandas Kids. And then my office, because parents are talkative, right? You know, from there, my office became full of kids. And there goes my research into, okay, now I've got this whole new diagnosis. How do I help it? More than just, like I said, removing the root cause and then optimizing the body. Like, what is it? What's going on? What's the immune responses? And I've just dug in from there. And now my practice is a lot of kids. So would you say, based on your experience, you suspect that your exposure to mold was kind of the underlying root cause for some of your symptoms? I think so, because I mean, you know, I'm going to give you guys the chills and especially people listening to this, but I moved into this basement and, you know, I'm, I'm a college kid, so I'm not trying to spend money. There's like four of us living in a duplex that originally had two bedrooms, a basement, a garage that we turned into bedrooms. And there was mold growing up the uh, walls in the basement that I was living in. Everything smelled like mold. I remember uh, squeegeeing or taking just like a towel and pushing it the water toward the drain when it would flood. Wow. It wouldn't flood the whole basement. So I'm like, I can live down here. I'm fine. Most people don't realize, right? I have my hands on a fair amount of pans, pandas, kids, and I see that mold is really often an underlying cause for exposure. But the thing that gets the blame will be like the underlying autism diagnosis or the underlying mycoplasma diagnosis to the point where parents almost don't focus on or recognize or ignore the mold. And I'm wondering if you see a lot of that in your practice. Oh, so much. You know, last year I was presenting at CellCore and they asked me to bring as much research as I could. So I was like, well, what better to than to just kind of look at this because mold is a huge part of my practice too. So I actually went back at a diff, about probably a hundred different patients' records and was just looking. And about 70 to 75% of PANS kids that I worked with had a positive test for mold. Now that doesn't mean that more didn't, that just means that we didn't ever run it. They didn't run it before me, et cetera. Because when you get to my clinic, I'm like, hey, look, we got to run an ERMI to make sure that you don't have mold now after doing that research. And oftentimes when I'm looking at organic acid tests and blood tests, I can see hints that there is mold now. Before this result, I wasn't as in tune with mold and pans, but it's got to be at least 70, 75%. Uh, of kids that I'm working with will test positive for mold. It was incredible. I was like, that is eye-opening of what might be leading to the susceptibility to mycoplasma pneumonia and strep and all these other infections that have been more closely tied to pans than mold. Whereas I'm going back like, hey, that's got to be probably the number one thing for pans. Now, pan does is strep specific, but even in that case, did mold make you susceptible? 
It makes sense when you start looking at the immunosuppressive function of some mycotoxins that these other infections kind of dominate more. And I'm wondering what kind of testing other than the organic acid oats testing that you do, do you do for determining mold? Yeah, so I mean, I like to do three different things to look at mold because I want to know, well, I mean, I guess four if you really look at it. So there's your general blood work and you can look at different things like C4A, VIP and MSH, which are all different types of blood tests, most of which are in correlation to, if you just want to think of it, simply inflammation. They're just seeing if the immune system is reacting, if your body's inflaming. So you can look at that blood work wise, but multiple things can trigger that because Lyme disease can trigger C4A also without the presence of mold. So that's, that's one piece that gives us a glimpse into the body's reactivity, then the organic acid test, but there's 77, 76 different markers on an organic acid test. So I'm looking at, do you have oxalates? Is your mitochondria breaking down? This is your, is going to be signified by your energy system. So do we see the inability to process fats, carbs, uh, or even through the electron transport chain? So you can see that in the organic acid test. And then some other pieces is there's different markers that are in correlation with methylation and toxic exposure. So if any of these are off, it starts signaling me like, hey, look back to that toxic exposure. And if those markers are off, that's going to give me back and forth between mold or radioactive elements, right? So then I haven't seen radioactive elements as often correlated with the C4As and the blood work. And then I run just direct testing, right? So we run uh, mycotoxin testing through urine, which you can run through a multitude of different labs. There's Vibrant America, who has 34 different markers. There's GPL, which has 11. And there's Real-Time Labs, which has eight. And honestly, each lab is a little bit better at finding different types of mold. So I do know practitioners out there that will run all of those. Of course, that comes at a great expense. I don't love doing that just because of the expense, but that's a direct test. And then from there, I'm running an ERMI test on your home and I'm trying to see, okay, do we actually see mold in your home, mold in your body, or is this mold that's in your body that you're getting in due to a colonization, which you can see more in the organic acid test. So just trying to find and correlate all these tests together because, you know, is mold coming from your car, your house, your workplace, or is it something that you were in like I was, and then I moved long before I even realized my sickness of, from mold, I moved. So there's no longer any current mold exposure except for what could be colonizing me or just simply in my tissues. You ever use the My MycoLab mycotoxin antigen serum test? I haven't used that. I've had it come into my clinic. To this point, I haven't had to use it because between the combination of the other things I said and muscle testing and simply just listening to people talk. I mean, hey, did you ever smell moldy or musty stuff at your house? Yeah. yeah? Okay. You're, you're long gone from there now? Okay, good. We're, we're at least out. Let's make sure where we're at now is safe and let's move forward. I mean, that, that's some of the conversation I have with people because I'm like, if you only have so much money to deal with, all of these labs get really expensive really fast. Sometimes you can just do some general investigative work that, that is, is much simpler, just, just smell. It sounds like you do like a basic environmental screening of, of looking for like damp or mold or water damage exposure. Yeah. And that's not perfect. So if people are listening going, you know, well, I don't see anything. It's not here. I was just talking to a doctor Friday who's been sick for a long period of time. Never made sense to me. I'm like, you're missing something. 
she's never asked me personally to work with her, but I'm like, you are missing something major. And she just found that her hurts me test was like a 24, which it's supposed to be below 10 minimum. And I'm going, yeah, that's what you were missing. There it is. Uh, you know, and a hurts me test is 155 bucks. Uh, so that, that's an easy one to run. But uh, yeah, just because you can't smell it doesn't mean it's not there. But if you can smell it, find it and remove it or leave. I'm really curious, since you are very knowledgeable in mold and you understand the environmental factor, what do patients, like what is their reaction to you when you tell them that their home may be a problem and that they may have to move? You know, that's one of the hardest things that I do for a living. You know, I've told uh, friends of mine, well, you know, we'll be out to dinner or something. I'm like, and it just weighs on me. It weighs on me because I know the weight that it's going to put on a family. But I've had families where they live in a $400,000 home and it's a $200,000 fix. And I mean, if you look at the market that we're in today, where everything is sky high, like it's hard to move. And families sometimes are like, you know, we sit and we talk about a plan, like, okay, let's, let's first, let's look for, is this an easy fix? Is this something that is visible that we can remove after we remove the problem, we can clean the home and then we can move on. That could be an easier fix. Or is this something that it was a leak from the ceiling into a wall where you've got to tear out a significant portion of the house? Families have every different type of reaction. Some are like, I knew it. Some are, you know, the results they gave me that they, they planned already before they even gave me the result. They're like, we've got to get out of here. So I get the gamut of reactions, but it's emotional. It's hard. I mean, if this is your child at home, if this is a financial burden that you just, you can't deal with right now. And just knowing on my end, it's like, it's not impossible to heal while in mold. It's not, but it's close. I've had people that fortunately they weren't ultra mold sensitive and we were able to get some things going like increased detoxification and energy production to where they could manage getting some healing while they're there. But for the most part, it's like, you know, many practitioners don't want to work forward until you're out of that environment because it's such a bad place and it is so emotional, so heavy. We'd like to hear about the protocols that you do use, but do you find with your protocols, some people don't get past a certain point of recovery? And the reason that I'm asking that is because I think that there's an issue of exposure to contaminated items that that some people don't realize how awful that can affect like hypersensitized people. Like Alicia and Eric and I, we're all hypersensitized. So if we go in somewhere where there's a piece of furniture that has like stachybotrys or triglothesines on it, like we will, we will feel it and we can go in somewhere and be like that, that's bad. So I'd love to hear any, any comments on that. And then also a little bit about the protocols that you do like to use that do work for your patients. Yeah, I mean, staying in a toxic environment, meaning the home is obviously the worst, but the first steps that I tell people is if it can absorb moisture. So if, if you can get it damp, it doesn't go with you. It can go to a, a storage unit, but it doesn't go with you. That's kind of the, the, the blanket rule that I set out there for people. And again, there is a different level for di to different people. I know that for myself, I don't respond poorly to a night, two, three, four nights in a moldy hotel room. I've done it. I know how my body functions and what my body's capacity to detoxify is. I can handle that. And I will actually put friends in the cleaner one and I will move myself into the dirty one, knowing how my body is, knowing that I'm also taking mitochondrial support, detox support. I have a portable ozone machine. So I've got some things that I'm helping myself do. 
But then my fiance is the other side of this. I was living in a condo, pretty new condo, nice, clean, inspected condo. And I'm fine. And she starts coming over more and more after I proposed because it's going to be her condo, right? And she starts getting migraines. And I'm like, what's going on? So listening to me talk in my podcasts and and being around, she realized that this could be a thing. So she just starts investigating. She's pulling back curtains and different things, finds this little spot where there's some mold and it's not a lot. So what do I do? I say, get out of the house. We tape it off. We ventilate. We open the windows. I cut all of it out. I throw it out while I'm masked and everything to do it properly. I've got some construction background. So don't, if you're listening, don't go renovating your house on your own, please. There's proper ways to do that. You heard me already say taped off, sectioned off, take the stuff outside. Don't let it in your home. Had proper vacuum and ventilation. But then my concern was, is all my stuff contaminated to where she can't ever come over while I have this stuff? And it does, does do it. I have a client from Finland and they moved homes but they brought their furniture with them and mother couldn't get well. Daughters couldn't go well. Both daughters have pain responses. One's rubbing a, a hair spot. The other one's got ticks and, and OCD and anxiety and stomach aches and headaches at four, by the way, the mother took some of the books that they brought with them because that was, they didn't bring a lot with them, but they took the books. And I said, just put it in a plastic bin, seal it. Don't let it out in the open air. And I go, what else did you bring? She's like, well, we brought some pillows. I said, okay, get rid of them. Well, husband didn't want to get rid of them. So she chopped them open, opened them up, and there was actually mold inside of it. Threw those out. Within three days, kids stopped ticking. The other kids stopped rubbing a hole in their hair so that the, the hair grew back. A stomach aches and pain resolved for both kids. Unfortunately, the mother still, we got some work to do because she still got some, which it sounds like all of you have a little bit of overreactive immune system mass. So, which I'm now referring to PTSD of the immune system. And I found that if we do some immune nervous system, PTSD work, meaning like neurofeedback and some other things, we actually can shut down some of that response to where then now you guys can all potentially go into environments that aren't perfect. I'm not saying you can ever live in mold, but into environments that aren't perfect and then we can get you out of that. Because it's my belief, and of course, for each and every individual, each one of you may be different, there is something that's keeping your immune system on high alert. And we've got to get that to calm down so that we can reset, so that we can now get well. As far as protocols, for me, it's, it's step one, safe environment. And, and I've, I've created a checklist for this, and, and it's even in the Parasite program I've released. And it's make sure you're in a mold-free, clean water emotionally stress-free as much as you can be. I mean, people got kids and things, but no abusive relationships, no parasites in your life, whether they're human or otherwise. Environment. So those are some of the keys. Make sure your teeth, you don't have the amalgams, that sort of checklist. Do that. Okay. So once you have that checklist checked off, yes, put that to the side. Now you're a new person, new environment, and we've got to see what is the top priority. Well, mold gets in your system. Radioactive elements, metals are in your system. You've got to get those out of you. And to get those out of you, they have to go through a process. They're going to be deep embedded in your cells. They're in your mitochondria. By being in your mitochondria, they cause all this disruption that we see in the organic acid test. So to get that out of the cell, it has to then go to the organs and the tissues, to the lymph, to the liver, to the colon, and out. So that's the process. So every single one of those things that I just mentioned have to be 
cleaned out and optimized before I want to empty the cells, right? And so then I've got to make sure your colon's moving. Are you constipated? Do we have parasites in the way? Do we have microbiome dysbiosis through bacteria or mycoplasma? How do we get that out? So oftentimes I have to start with parasites because you're so immunocompromised, parasites grow out of control and I get the parasites out. So now the bowel starts moving properly. We stop having the gut issues, the leaky gut. You're probably still allergic to all the foods you're allergic to because mold still has you triggered. The immune system is still triggered, but we at least have bowels moving. And then we get into the liver. We get rid of the liver flukes, which you see coming out looks like tomato skins. They look like little pearls and rice. Even though, you know, I'm like, are you guys eating that? Most people are like, no, I'm not eating that. Then, then that's not what it is. It's some parasites coming out. So we clean out the liver. We get the gallbladder working. We get some tudka. We get gallbladder flushes. We get all the different liver type supplements. I use kidney liver support from Cellcor for a lot of the liver and gallbladder work. And then we get into lymph. So we're doing um, castor packs, dry brushing, vibration plates, lymph massage. We're also using different supplements for lymph support. I use two, which is lymph active. And then I use pecanas teres. And that starts getting the lymph open. And then we have to optimize the body. And some of the ways that I optimize the body is through fasting. I just finished, uh, which interestingly enough, a six day prolonged fast, which is a uh, fasting protocol where you get to eat a little bit, but this helps to start turning the mitochondria on and optimizing the tissue that your body has that's actually fully functional without going in with heavy duty things that are going to strip mold out of your body. Because when you go in with things that are heavy duty, your body has to process that, right? So whether it's your cholestyramine, your well calls, your carboxies, your different sorts of charcoal binders, your body has to be able to process through all that. So I try to optimize you while I'm binding and pulling so that we can actually make it through this process. Because I need you to have all the ability to make energy you can have all the detox capacity you can because once I start pulling mold out of those tissues where your body has pushed it off and is now sequestering it, it's just like your savings account of mold and metal and radioactive elements to get all that stuff out. It's going to cause a lot of flare ups. I've had kids that we had all their ticks gone, all their symptoms gone completely. I'm like, all right, it's time to go out for mold parents, hang on. And then you see these flares of things. So they start ticking for a few days when we start this protocol which they, it was gone, right? I'd gotten rid of it. It comes back as the mold starting to come out. I'm like, oh, we got to slow down because you've got to get the mold out, but we can't go too fast. We don't want to make the kids miserable. So it's a big, long process of opening, supporting, building, repeat. Thank you for sharing that. I'm wondering if you ever see instances where some of the metal particles can't be fully removed. It's hard to fully say because you can't fully remove them. You can't test them at least through blood work, your hair work, or urine, right? You can't see them coming out through testing. And I also do muscle testing. And of course, I'm listening a lot to symptoms. So how do you feel is a big piece. Um, most all of the time, and I'd say 98% of the time, I'm able to get to a point where I can't muscle test it. I can't do any sort of blood, urine, or hair testing to find metal. And we get it all out. Now, sometimes for the ultra sensitive people that are super reactive to everything, this takes a long time. I mean, I've got a couple of clients right now that are going on four and five years, but they came from totally bedridden, reactive to the world, can only eat a couple of foods to now, you know, back to full-time work, enjoying life. And we're trying to just get things going. 
but it seems like there's always a deeper level you can get to, whether it's through the fasting, fasting longer periods of time, mitochondrial optimization. And Cellcore came out with a product called Mito ATP, but then they've even supercharged that one to Mito DTX, which just drives all kinds of things out of your tissues. You can take that with a clean urine test and then take it for a day and then do another urine test and you got all kinds of stuff coming out of you. And I've seen the test through a mass spec where we know it's not in the Mito DTX, it's stuff that it's opening up your mitochondria and it's forcing it out. So there's always another level, it seems like. I'm really interested in your comment that you made about radioactivity. Can you expand on that a little bit more? You said some people have, I, I, I missed the whole phrase. You mentioned something about radioactivity. Yeah, so this is a, a really kind of new area. I don't hear a lot of people talking about it. Dr. Jay Davidson's talking about it a little bit. And at first when he said it, I, I, I just... I'm like, oh, okay. Some people have radioactivity. I don't ever see that. I'm not worried about it. I've never heard people muscle testing for it, uh, you know, unless you're in a, a nuclear power plant problem, something big, right? But in reality, Environmental Workers Group uh, org has a map where you can look up radium in the ground. And there's a map of, of the whole world, but the United States specifically, Wisconsin's covered in it, where radium's in our ground. It's naturally there. Oil companies, when they're drilling and they're pulling out, they actually pull out what's called brine, which is a radioactive byproduct of drilling oil that, that just runs off because technically it's from the ground. It's natural, but it's natural from the Earth's core, not from, or from deeper levels down anyway, not from top level. And then you've got all sorts of nuclear tests, nuclear power plants, and different radioactive elements that have been put into our environment due to man-made problems. And then we also know about radon, which at least here in the Midwest where I live, we test for radon because we all have basements. So you have all those different possibilities of where radioactive elements are coming from. And if you know anything about radiation, we don't want it in us. They use it in cancer to kill cancer because it kills tissues that are uptaking radiation faster than they kill normal tissue. Well, if you're constantly in the environment of this, like radon, if you have a level over three or three, I believe the World Health Organization is going to tell you, okay, that's unsafe. Over four, you don't want to move into a house. You need to put in a mitigation system because it can fill with a dangerous gas in your basement. Well, I've been running hair tissue mineral analysis on this, and I find tons of people, especially chronically ill people, especially very sensitive people, or what I call people with low constitution, uh, they're just, they're, their inner strength isn't there where they react to kind of everything. They react to walking into stores because of smells, they re react and they can be very sensitive to molds. So it's not just a mold problem, sometimes, sometimes they have both. And radioactivity, unfortunately, can cause a polarity change in the mitochondria that decreases mitochondrial output that leads to a weakened body overall. Because remember, mitochondria are your powerhouse, they're your energy system. So if that's weakened, you have less energy, but they also cause your body to, they, they control your immune system. So if your immune system is, is out of control, now you're reacting to everything. And it's not just a little reaction. It's a shoot first, ask questions later. It's a, we're going to drop a bomb on this of mast cells. So now we have mast cell reaction, chronic inflammatory response syndrome issues. And people are dealing with this all over the place. I've got people coming in constantly because now my practice is full of people that can't get help anywhere else because I'm, I'm always attempting to stay on the cutting edge. I always have something new to try, it seems like. Somebody comes to me and they tried everything I've done. I'm like, oh, that's weird. 
And then we start digging deeper. It's not that I know everything. It's just that I'm always trying to keep an open mind to everything that all these doctors are saying. I listen to podcasts too. I'm like, oh, they said something new. Let's go dig into that. But radioactive elements, you can see in a hair test very easy. So I run a trace elements hair test. Your detox and drainage pathways are going and you're still struggling to get well. Try that out. You might see a high elevation of radioactive element. And the worst part of this is if you have a negative radon test, you don't live next to a nuclear power plant, check your water. Water is the worst contributor for this. And radioactive elements do not get pulled out by reverse osmosis filters that I've seen. You have to have distilled water. I have a distiller in my office. I transport that water to my home. That's the only drinking water I use. Unfortunately, you cannot distill enough water to shower in it. But I've seen people with 10, 20, $30,000 reverse osmosis water systems, the top of the line, still have radioactive elements in their bodies, testable to the hair test. We cut that off and then they start getting better. And you know, these are people that one group that I can think of, a family, they moved out of black mold, went and worked with great doctors, couldn't get well because they had moved into this house that had radioactive elements. I think you bring up a really good point. Even looking and trying to find the best place to live, I think is so important to look into the Environmental Working Group's website or other websites on the EPA to see if where you want to live, if there is nitrates, PFAs, you know, radioactive materials, whatever the case, X, Y, and Z. My husband and I are doing that now. We've, I have a spreadsheet where I've listed safe states that are the least toxic in the United States. And sadly to say, the majority of the United States is extremely toxic, whether it's algae blooms or whatever. But, you know, if you are someone who is struggling and you want to have a normal quality of life and you are extremely hypersensitive, I almost feel like this is the lengths that you have to go to to feel almost normal, I feel like. I know that people are coming in with complex chronic issues. What is the length of time that you usually see from getting someone who's extremely sick to bringing them back to some sense of normalcy and, and, and their numbers are reducing and they're feeling a lot better? It's such a broad spectrum there. And even that family I just mentioned that had radioactive elements, that had black mold, that has parasites, there, there's a large number in their family one of the younger daughters who had PANS symptoms saw it in the neural zoomer, which is a blood test for PANS. So we know it was there. It was like three weeks and she was back to normal. And I couldn't believe it. And then we have the father who now it's been three months is getting very close to being back to normal. But then unfortunately the mother, it's going to take a couple of years. And the thing that I've said is if you have a complex chronic illness, meaning you have high reactivity, you have mold, you have CIRS, it's probably going to be an 18 month to two years before I'm done on average working with you. And that means that we get to a point where I'm like, hey, take three months off. Let's see how you feel. Your symptoms on, a, a, on my chart, we, we take all of your symptoms and I give me, go give me a scale of zero to 10. They're all down at the two range. You're not reacting to your environment at every level. But like I mentioned earlier, there are people that take longer and it just depends on, can you take supplements without reacting super negatively? And if so, if you do react negatively, can we get you built up? Can you get yourself to a safe environment? Because I mean, I know you're doing the research and got the spreadsheet. I mean, to me, it's like, okay, 
no one's water, nowhere in the, in the United States, much less probably the world has safe water anymore. We just don't. So I just go, instead of going to a place that maybe charges you more for that, go to a place where it's cheaper to live and buy a distiller, you know, kind of pick some of those things, pick something a little bit further away from a city where there's not as much pollution. Because here's the thing, the human organism, no matter what your epigenetic switches are, should be able to live in the outdoor environment in a fairly low dense population just fine if we can get the rest of the things straightened up and i find that i mean i have seen the most chronic bedridden people go back to being normal i'm not saying that they're on that level of warrior genotype where nothing bothers them but they're pretty normal when you get rid of everything and like you mentioned when you're stuck in mold and, and that's your mindset, mold everything. It creates this traumatic experience where it's so fearful that you want everything to be perfect. It's never reality. There's always going to be some level of something on your ERMI test. There's always going to be some level of something on your water screening, right? Like it's never going to be perfect, but the body can adapt to those smaller things. Although you have to be really particular when you're still sick when you get over that your body should be able to adapt and that's the, the mindset I, need, I always want to get people into is yes we're going to have to take some sacrifices to get well but once we are well we still have to do some things to stay well i mean even i do i mean right now this water is not fully clean because i've got mito atp i've got minerals in here because i want my mitochondria going i want my mineral content going up i just did a six-day fast but i also will go out and have a burger and a whiskey at times because we have to enjoy life. We have to get ourselves to that point because emotional stress of running from mold can be just as detrimental as a re-exposure of a night in a moldy building. Like they both can be very bad for you. And we have to find a balance there. And this is what I talk with clients about every day because the emotional stress of this stuff is just as important. And we, we tend to miss it because we're so worried about something else. Absolutely. And speaking of patients who are on the verge of death, Eric um, is, I would like to say, the original moldy. I feel like uh, he, <laughs> he actually was able to help himself with avoidance. And I wanted to just probe your familiarity with that. Avoidance of mold? Yeah, so basically going into pristine environments uh, for a period of time and camping or uh, minimizing contamination and allowing the body to calm down. Is this something that you implement in your practice with those that you find are not responding to protocols? You know, when I was just giving that explanation, I'm like, maybe the extreme measure you have to take is to camp. I have had one client that was in a very financially tight situation. And I just said, okay, get a tent, go to your backyard, call me in three months. She just, she didn't have the money for supplements, for my time, for medication, nothing. She couldn't leave. I said, just start there. And I have seen that work for some because if you can just slow down and let your body rest, it will start to detox some if you can just get out of the environment. Now, will that get you all the way back to well? In my experience, it hasn't just doing camping, but it's a start point and we got to start somewhere. And if you can get out into a camping environment and start working on your mindset and doing some 
whatever you want to call it, prayer, meditation, limbic retraining, that's another step that is fairly inexpensive to do. If you can go beyond that and get as much of your body for camping, you maybe not be can't go naked, but maybe you can, you're away from enough people, you can get infrared light at sun up and sundown. You can start going on walks. Walking, by the way, helps to drain lymph. There's a lot of very inexpensive things you can do if you're unable to afford all of the healthcare things out there that can take another step forward. You just have to find a way to get your mindset ready to say, okay, it's going to take a little longer, but here's the things that I'm going to do and, and, and move forward. And then maybe at that point, you get yourself to where you can get a job and you can start affording a little charcoal, which is not too expensive. And then you can start affording some deribosome uh, L-carnitines to help start getting those mitochondria going. In terms of diet, what do you find is most successful for people who are healing and going through this? Because that's always up and down. Yeah, so you've heard me speak a lot about a mitochondria. And although last week I was vegan for the first time in my life for six days, and uh, let me tell you that that's not my favorite. I, I don't recommend that to clients, although there is a time and place for almost every diet out there. I tend to be a little bit more on the ketogenic side for mitochondrial repair and, and really forcing somebody into that fasting state because I also find that if you're highly reactive, which it sounds like all of you are to mold, going five, six, seven, 30 days of a water fast can actually reset the immune system. There's a lot of studies to show that. So ketogenic fasting or just general non-processed whole foods is probably my lifestyle diet, right? So that's your lifestyle, non-processed whole foods with a fairly balanced macro ratio of 30, 30, 30 is probably where I put most people, but that's a lifestyle. If we're looking at healing diets, that's when I go into that more keto level I use that more and then antihistamine diet can also go in there. But with mold, we get a lot of oxalates. So I might even go into the low ox diets, just depending upon what seems to be worse for you. For oxalates, you're probably going to have more body pain, more achiness, feel like honestly sands in your veins because that's kind of what oxalates can be described as. If it's more histamine reactions, you react to, to a little bit of everything. You're always rashing. You're always having hives. You react to a lot of food. So we might want to go antihistamine. You can combine these things, but I prefer to have the largest variety in your diet I can versus just, you know, be a keto, low ox, low histamine, and then you're only eating a few foods. Can you tell us what the deal is with the whole oxalate issue? Because, you know, I, I hear about that a lot and I'm, I'm just really confused as to why it's a problem or is there a function of the body that changes the way it processes these oxalates or could you explain that a little bit more oxalates primarily come from vegetables they are a defense mechanism that that, that green leafy things have produced so that animals wouldn't eat them so because the animal eats this it feels worse because oxalates are minerals they can form into kidney stones. So you get kidney stone diets. That's where oxalates were probably originally talked about. So we get this, this kidney stone and it hurts to come out. Well, if it doesn't form that stone, then you have all these little particles. And that's why I said it feels like sand in your, in your veins, in your blood, because they're, they're floating around and getting to your joints and they're creating irritation. You might feel like you're having arthritis or just achy throughout your body. So avoiding those foods that have oxalates in them 
can help you to decrease your oxalate level. Well, mold itself creates an increase in oxalates in the body also. So if you have a high level of mold in your environment or in your body, you're gonna have higher oxalates. So if you're looking at a Great Plains laboratory test, there's three markers. I can't remember the, the exact terms off the top of my head here, but if you're looking at them in uh, number order, the top two are more genetically predisposed. So you could potentially have uh, a predisposed position of that. But if you have the last one, it's going to be more mold or food. And even if you're still in mold, I'm going to have you go on the oxalate free diet to reduce that because oxalates also damage cellular structures in mitochondria. And if I can get you taking things like calcium citrate, magnesium citrate, potassium citrate, B1, um, these things can help you to get your body to remove them, those oxalates out by binding to them and pulling them out, reducing the strain from oxalates on your body. I actually run into the oxalate conundrum quite a bit because as an herbalist, I use primarily plants for people who are recovering. And I noticed that a lot of feedback from the idea of using herbal medicine is that it's high in oxalates. One thing that I noticed as somebody who practices Chinese medicine, it's a little different analysis of the body because you listen specifically to the symptoms and then they're organized by organ function. And one thing that I find interesting about people who can't tolerate oxalates is they always have Chinese medicine kidney pathologies. And I've noticed when you treat it in a way that drains mucus from the kidneys and the ureters, it actually improves kidney function so that people can tolerate things that they couldn't tolerate. I'm wondering if you notice in your patient population, women who have ICC or recurrent UTIs um, don't do well with a high animal protein diet. I actually find that they do better typically with the high animal protein. I'm even seeing carnivore uh, several times be very effective in that area. I do agree that, that the herbs, uh, I've gotten the, the same feedback as people are saying, it's a little dangerous to do the oxalates there. And I'm like, yeah, you got to at some point pick what direction are you trying to go? Are we, are we trying to be a perfectionist here? The answer is absolutely no. I'm not trying to be a perfectionist being 100% oxalate free. It's just choosing where you want to go and what oxalates you want to allow in. And, and I completely agree. If you get drainage up, kidney up, get the body clearing, oxalates are not going to be an issue anymore. So, yeah, I mean, I agree with the, I agree with the, the herbals. I like to use them. They actually, in the long run, get rid of it. And then uh, plant-based protein, I mean, honestly, if I – and here's the thing. I'm, I'm a guy that likes to lift weights. I've always been drawn more toward meat. Uh, just as a, as a person. So I eat more meat. I work with tons of vegans, um, vegetarians, all the, all the scale of, of that diet or diets. And I don't force people to eat meat. And if, if they don't want to, I sometimes have encouraged some guys, especially more on the male side, I've encouraged some males to eat meat when we're going through things, because I see that their testosterone level is 150 200 and we don't ever want to be below 500 as a male and then by adding meat in i think it goes up to 500 same thing can be said i've had people have gone vegan because they've been very very sick and it helped them 
So I've looked into blood type diets. I've looked into the genetic type diets. I've looked into um, all of these other things. And I think there are certain blood types like, oh, they tend to say likes more meat. So I think there is something to the composition of the body. I think there's something to the part of your healing journey of the body, but it all for me goes back to balance. I think that uh, whether you want to base it off the type of teeth we have, the blood types or the, or what we've seen mankind eating for history, it's a balance. We need some plant, we need some meat, we need um, times of more of each. And, and I'm very, you'll find that I'm extremely balanced in nature and we just need to listen to the body. I also was trained in um, Eastern medicine past my, my boards for acupuncture and uh, I, I love it. I mean, it's just listen to the body, give it what it needs. And oftentimes it gets well. Thank you for that answer. I'd like to, because of your, your interest in, in radioactivity, I'd like to, I'd like to pass the mic to Eric and see if he has any questions or conversation for you. One really interesting, well, there's a, a million really interesting things about Eric. We actually call him Eric Gump because he has all these crazy things in the history of, of mold illness. <laughs> but he is the original prototype of chronic fatigue syndrome. Mm. And that was later found to have stachybotrys Im implicated. And mm. he also has a really interesting history as a bioweapons expert. So he's really mm. familiar with the effects of radiation. And he's taught both Alicia and I about how stachybotrys can have radiomimetic properties. So I just thought I'd like to kind of bridge that gap and open conversation with Eric here. Yeah, well, the uh, reason for my interest in toxic black mold is because of the sheer unfamiliarity that uh, people had back in 1985. People were willing to look at all kinds of different factors. And the one thing that patients were pointing at, which the CDC, NIH, all researchers failed to attach any importance to, was the mold. So that uh, kind of struck me as being odd because um, these stories kept showing up over and over again. Thanks to my uh, background in the military as a uh, nuclear missile weapons launcher specialist, I saw that uh, the effect of the toxic black mold was very similar to radiation and, and shutting down the immune function, that people who had had even a previous exposure to the mold had a lowered immune function, which less left them susceptible to infections, viruses, fungi, bacteria later on. And uh, when I applied this model to what I saw going on around me, it, it just fit, it kept fitting. Now, uh, most of us don't have the opportunity or the equipment to test for metallic particles, but Dr. Antonietta Gotti does, the Italian nanoparticle researcher, and she's tested the sweat of sick people after doing saunas, and she finds that there is a certain level of excretion of these toxic nanoparticles. And she was convinced thanks to the um, Gulf War Syndrome and a similar Balkan War Syndrome, where soldiers were exposed to depleted uranium, that radiation had to be a part of it. I mean, it was just assumed. And she was surprised to find out that this was not the case, that what people were really being sickened by was not the classic radiation per se, but to the surface energy of these nanoparticles. So when I found out that uh, mold is very good at processing nanoparticles, it seemed logical that if we have uh, atmospheric metals feeding the mold, 
that they could produce a higher concentration of these toxic nanoparticles and cause an increase in illness around these mold colonies, which would catch doctors completely off guard, it would make no sense to them. So the um, mycotoxin tests, while valid, because they do indicate the increased presence, the increased susceptibility of people to these, these toxic molds, there's still another factor going on, which is why is toxic mold such a problem now when prior to 25 years ago, it was completely unknown. So that's basically my uh, thesis here is that atmospheric metals have fed toxic black mold something that makes it more powerful, suppresses immune function, and allows more of these toxic, uh, these mycotoxins to get into the system, and they're just getting harder and harder to detox. Very interesting information. I mean, our environment, obviously, our, our pollutions are skyrocketing. Our uh, radioactive elements, like I was speaking on earlier, is skyrocketing. Um, and then you add to that EMF with Dr. Dietrich Klinghart has talked so much about uh, EMF hitting these molds, creating more mycotoxin production. I think I saw a study where it showed 600 times the amount of mycotoxin production when it was when mold was set next to a Wi-Fi router. Router. Do you see a correlation between the EMFs, the metals in the air, and, and then mold? Well, I saw Dr. Klinghart's um, paper. And I wondered if there was any way I could test this concept. And it seemed to me that a thought experiment would be that if a um, cell tower goes up in a neighborhood and all the mold starts producing 600 times more mycotoxins, there would certainly be zones of illness, extreme illness around these cell towers. And I just didn't see this pattern. And then I took um, mold close to cell towers to see if it affected me more, and it didn't. So in the lack of other people verifying Dr. Klinghart's um, concept, I'm not prepared to attach any importance to it right now. It's always interesting to listen. Like I said, I'm always keeping an open mind with every bit of research coming in, because I'm just like, it's gonna affect somebody. It's interesting that the uh, CDC NIH are holding major symposiums and briefings on the biology of fatigue and working desperately. There's institutes the world over trying to solve the mystery of chronic fatigue syndrome and none of them are mentioning mold. I find that fascinating because that was actually the clue that started this syndrome. The original chronic fatigue syndrome cohort was pointing at mold, specifically asked the Center for Disease Control to look into the filters which they felt would be catching and concentrating the toxic noxious agent it was responsible for their chronic illness. And the CDC looked at the uh, teachers like they were crazy. And even though all the clusters of the original chronic fatigue syndrome cohort occurred in sick buildings, which were reported as sick buildings at the time, to this day, we have no researchers coming back to go, gosh, I wonder why the, all those clusters of this chronic illness happened in sick buildings. It's too much money to fix all the buildings. Yeah, it's a pain in the butt. And as you pointed out, if people are responding to a very small colony, just a few square inches on a single wall, then this stuff can light up all over the place and it's hard to control. So the solution comes back to uh, new materials or changing building code and structure to 
better suit the future because all the buildings that we have now that are made out of uh, mold food, which is sheetrock, that's what are you going to do there? There's, there's no great solution. Yeah, um, certainly it would be nice to have ideal buildings that are impervious to toxic mold, but that's not really feasible. Mm -hmm. uh, mold can grow on straw down in drainage ditches, grows on cellulose just fine. We just had an uh, episode with retired EPA epidemiologist, uh, Dr. Lewis, and he talks about going out to examine um, a toxic sewage sludge incident and sitting down on bales of hay and getting sick. And we know that Stachybotrys, the toxic black mold, loves to grow on hay. Mm -hmm. So it seems like right then and there, you could examine the hay and find out, yeah, this stuff has the black mold. Yes, it's affecting us. So this seems to be a, a culprit in some kind of neuroinflammatory response over and above the sewage sludge that they were looking at. But what do we do about our houses when one corner, one wall can get a water leak and light up? Well, pretty much as you've done, listen to people, rely on our senses. When we detect these incidents, rely on ourselves to find it and clean it up as opposing to putting so much importance on tests that we deny our senses and wait for the experts to figure it out when a lot of this can be controlled just by using our own perception of what's going on. Yeah, I agree. And other things I think we can do is to continue to optimize the, the human organism too, because if we can process this out because we take care of ourselves, then we can handle more we pay better attention, we'll have to handle less, and we can get through. The uh, theories of the Center for Disease Control back in 1985 was that if anybody had a reaction to mold, they must have a weakened immune system. And they pretty much maintained that stance all these years. And I wondered, is this true? Because if you read about the characteristics of the toxic black mold, it produces extremely powerful toxins that theoretically are capable of affecting anybody, are healthy people really immune? Well, it was a simple matter to find out. I just took people, healthy controls, to the very buildings that were responsible for the creation of the chronic fatigue syndrome, and sure enough, healthy people could feel it. They were mm -hmm. responding. So the toxic mold, it's not something that only affects the immune suppressed, it creates the immune suppression that allows these other infections, such as Epstein-Barr virus or human herpes virus 6 or cytomegalovirus to get out of control. So I think uh, the main thing is to educate doctors that there really is a toxic agent out there and that when people come in with these complaints, learn to recognize it for what it is, tell people to trust their senses. And in many, many cases, if you educate people, that their senses are a reliable guide, these people will take you right to the sick buildings and point directly at the mold colony that's affecting them. Yeah, they will. I mean, listening to patients and communicating to them and, and just trusting them has trained me in more ways than I can count. I mean, like I said from the very beginning of the show, I'm in practice working with the people I'm working with because I just listened. Absolutely. If we work together, trust each other, 
If doctors listen to the patient, then we can combine our efforts, get answers, and create real solutions for these problems. Now, there's no one more passionate about getting well, in my experience, than the person that's sick, and even more so, the mother of the person that's sick when it comes to young kids. Yeah, you know, the famous quote by Sir William Osler, listen to the patient. Listen to the patient. He will tell you his diagnosis. Well, not that the patient is going to know the medical term for whatever is going on, but because his illness is uppermost in his mind, he will naturally bring the most important clues to the fore. And if the toxic mold is what's affecting him the most, he'll say, when I get out of my house, I feel better. Mm -hmm. Or when I go into work, I feel sick every time I'm at work and I get better on vacation. Yep. So the clues are right there. We just need doctors to listen to us. Well, one of the things that I've implemented in my protocols for people is we make one change at a time for the most part, no matter what we're doing. Whether that's adding new supplements, changing diet, changing new behaviors, new, new therapies. Because I want to know how each and everything that you do affects you. So that I can understand, was this a good thing, a bad thing? Is it a thing that creates this reaction or that? Um, one of those things is I've had people leave their homes for a few weeks. It's just like you said. Sometimes that's not enough for everyone to have the full spectrum of noticing it. They're just too sick. It takes more than a couple of weeks or a few days. But yeah, I mean, I had a guy who got so much better. He moved out of his house because uh, he was like, I'm going to move to this other apartment. I want to go somewhere nicer. I'm finally feeling well after years moved from a safe environment to an unsafe environment, immediately got sick. But we had trained his brain to work as, what did I change? He immediately goes, well, the only thing that's changed is where I'm living. Broke that lease immediately, went back, and he was okay. But that lease, that one night triggered a week of mold symptoms. Yeah, the attempt to shift locations and find out you wound up in a worse place can be just as productive as moving into a good place. It tells you exactly what's going on. Yep. But you know, you brought up the concept of how people's mental state can be a driving force in their illness. Well, during the Tahoe outbreak, we had a phenomenon of reactivated Epstein-Barr virus. Mm -hmm. And then the further we got into it, we saw that other herpetic viruses were equally reactivated. And we know that people with herpes viruses, when they have an emotional challenge, they wind up in a flare. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I really can't help but wonder how often that these emotional flares are actually causing a, a herpes flare-up, a herpes reactivation, which causes an overall generalized inflammatory response. And when people control their emotional state, they're really helping to calm down a herpes flare. I'd really like doctors to look into that. It's... In a roundabout way being looked at right now, uh, Pan's Pandas, which we've talked about a little bit, is a um, group of children who have an immune response to strep, let's just say strep, which you have a um, immune mimicry. So the body sees strep and strep has a little thing where it'll pull a piece of tissue off of you, like say your basal ganglia, your brain, it'll attach itself to the outside of it to where now you can see 
your body, the immune system sees basal ganglia, then bypasses it. Well, if you keep staying sick, well, it comes back and takes a second look. So, oh, that's strep. Now it attacks both things. And when it attacks both things, now it's identified your brain as also a pathogenic issue, which creates this autoimmune encephalitis response in the brain. Well, with these kids, I have on several occasions been able to get them completely well, only to have parents say get divorced six months later which creates an amazingly huge strain on the child. And then the child starts to have immune responses again, because the brain or the immune system has identified the brain as being bad. So the immune system, the modulation of the immune system, when you stress yourself out, it suppresses your immune system and allows for these viruses to take hold. We know this. I mean, it's a common concept that we, we deal with and we watch. I watch Epstein-Barr numbers go up when people are having life traumas. Uh, or emotional trauma. So this is a, a major piece of the puzzle that is being studied to some degree, at least it is within the, the practitioner level because we're paying attention. We know that this is a major problem. And then on the other side of it, the pan side of it, the symptoms of pans is fear, anxiety, rage. These are common symptoms. So one of the most common triggers of PANS in studies I've seen is HHV6, HHV7, Strep A, Epstein-Barr. We know if you are dealing with these infections, these viruses, that the symptoms that may come from it are these emotional responses, right? So not only is it, it's a, it's a big circle. It's if your emotional express your immune system, then these viruses flare, then they cause you to be more emotional and back and forth. Yeah, the only doctor that I know who really went out of his way to look into this was Dr. Scott McMahon of the Shoemaker Group, the Shoemaker Organization. He's a PANS and PANDA specialist, and he worked up all of his PANS children and found that all of them had biomarkers for mold illness. Mm -hmm. And I wouldn't disagree that that's, that's possibly true. Like I said, out of the ones that, that I have, not all of them were tested, but 75% came up positive. I need to continue that research project and only take the ones that actually did the testing, which probably lead it to even a higher number. Because I don't know if I can remember off the top of my head even one kid that has pants pandas that did not have mold. So now the question is, how do we get our MECFS researchers to respond to this evidence? I don't know, because as I said, Lyme has been my passion, and they're just now starting to kind of, sort of, and I'm putting a lot of kind of, sort of in there, pay a little bit of attention to it, to where they're allowing some talks and, and different uh, practitioners to speak before Congress. And I think it's because some of the Congress members have their families and themselves that are dealing with it. But yeah, this is uh, such a issue because chronic fatigue um, and even into fibromyalgia and these symptom-based diagnoses, so many people are just like, oh, well, just stop being tired. Get up, do something. You're lazy. It, it's not doctors don't take you seriously they throw you into this category of it's all in your head take an antidepressant and that'll make you feel better which doesn't work at all but uh, unfortunately that is the mindset of our medical communities it's in your head it's not real and, and i'm like you guys did this to yourselves as far as the medical community you created diagnoses of symptoms and then you now categorize people as, as it's in their head because you created the diagnosis instead of looking for the root causes, which would be your molds, your limes, your environmental toxins. Um, but I think the awareness is beginning because I can tell you this, when I post a post about mold on my 
Instagram page, it's the most viewed post. Fascinating. And um, it just still strikes me as notable to think that back in 1985, not a single researcher in the world was capable of recognizing a cluster of sick teachers in a sick building as a mold problem. Science moves very slow. And unfortunately, scientists and researchers are supposed to be open-minded, but they may be some of the most closed-minded individuals that I've run into because they tend to have a preconceived notion that they stick to versus it could be anything, huh? You're sick, you're in this environment. Could it be something you're passing around? Sure. Could it be something in your environment? Strong possibility. Well, I suspect that the reason for this major increase in something going from completely unknown to everybody has a mold story now. Um, I think the mold changed. I think it became more powerful. I think it really is acting in ways that our grandparents never saw. You know, I, I don't have any evidence to disagree with you with. I also am curious again, because we're in an environment where our houses are sealed up tight, no airflow, you're rebreathing the same air. You know, my, my houses that I've been to that are 100 years old, they creak. You can hear the wind blow through the, the, the walls, the windows. They didn't even have glass on that shut all the way on all of them. I think we're also doing a, a great job of making our net zero, zero airflow homes that, that just recreate more issue that maybe was some there. But, you know, to, to your hypothesis, and I mean, although you don't agree with Klinghart's hypothesis at this point with the right evidence that you've seen, I mean, something has definitely changed and, and maybe it is the particles in the air that are feeding it. Yep, we just need to look into it. And we just need a lot of money to get people to research it, right? <laughs> yeah. Eventually, there's going to be so many of us, they're going to have to. I agree. I agree. And then that's where I think, like I said, Lyme is now. And I think chronic fatigue is, is on its way next. Uh, I think well, I will add that chronic fatigue syndrome is an official Center for Disease Control syndrome created in 1988 for a study of a specific illness entity. And believe it or not, the reason they gave it the screwy name is that they were hoping that doctors would think of it as chronic fatigue rather than the actual evidence base for which it was coined. Hmm. I love all the, the facts that you have. You're talking about dates that I wasn't alive in, so. <laughs> yeah, it was, it's a little bit of uh, ancient history here. The outbreak at Lake Tahoe scared the world so much that they saw a need to trivialize it. And the best way to do that was give it a, a silly name. And I was amazed that this tactic was as effective as it was. And we're in something like that again, aren't we? Yeah. Um, but I will say that back in 1985, when people with the Lyme disease started to show up, because that was an early hypothesis, I noticed that this group were just as reactive to the sick buildings as people with the Lake Tahoe mystery illness were. I mean, as a Lyme practitioner, I've seen years of people with Lyme that before I knew mold was a major issue, before it was on the top of my radar, and I was able to have success getting them well. And as cases of Lyme with people progressed, as I started seeing sicker and sicker and sicker individuals, now it's almost 100% that my chronically ill complexes have mold as a piece of that. It seems as if you can have Lyme and be some sick, 
and it's only Lyme or, or Lyme and parasites, Lyme and other things. But if you are that, that next subset of client where it's extreme illness, you have the combination of mold Lyme. Yeah, I think uh, Alicia would like to address how the medical profession is minimizing emphasis on these by normalizing Epstein-Barr virus, normalizing Lyme disease, normalizing mold illness, rather than giving it its due importance. So maybe Alicia would like to talk about that a little bit. Basically, yeah, when EBV started, it was a serious thing. You know, it was like, oh, we have a new virus. When you're chronically ill with EBV, it turns into cancer. And so now we're seeing the majority of the population having EBV and, you know, a doctor doesn't blink twice or doesn't care to treat you. And, you know, we, we had a, a funny conversation with a, a environmental epidemiologist that studied autism that basically made a comment that, oh, you know, maybe we didn't know about autism before, but it doesn't mean it wasn't always here. And so it's like, there's some weird sociological issue that's happening with these researchers and these doctors where they're just normalizing these instances. And it seems like a lot of these instances have to deal with the environment. And that component is completely taken off the table when you go see your allopathic doctor. They're not asking you about your moldy home. They're not asking you if you live next to um, a, a body of water that has a toxic algae bloom. I mean, these questions don't even come up. And so when you talk about Lyme and people in the chronic state, you have to think about also COVID long haulers. You know, people have been quarantined in their homes and who knows how many homes are moldy across the United States and they're still presenting with a chronically ill state after obtaining the virus. It's like, there is that factor and we can't ignore that. And doctors like you are going to be the doctors that succeed in this marketplace these days because I think people are getting, they're coming to a point where they're tired of going to their doctor that their insurance pays and not getting any answers and they're getting sicker and they're getting more pissed off and they're losing their homes and they're losing everything. I think we're teetering on the edge of a healthcare system collapse because these doctors and researchers are subscribing to corruption and whatever else is behind the standard of care instead of actually being a health investigator like someone like you who puts in that effort to try to figure out what are the causes of people getting sick and what can we do to, to help them? Well, being an investigator is far more difficult than simply just, here's a symptom, here's a pill. And having that open mind to, to do that also requires a lot more effort. Professional school takes years. You know, you're 30 something by the time you get into practice, you're burnt out on research, you've been overworked and let's be straightforward, brainwashed into a very specific subset of, of truth tellers and facts that come from a very specific set of guidelines. And that's just what you're trained on. I mean, it doesn't matter what school you're coming out of, whether it's chiropractic, naturopathic, medical, or DO, it's, it's here's your set of facts. These are the things you believe, and these are the ways you do it, and that's it. And then for most practitioners, I mean, I see tons of them as clients or their families. That's the way they think until something changes until their child gets diagnosed with autism, their wife gets diagnosed with fibromyalgia, chronic fatigue, they're themselves. And, and then, then mindsets change and they, they switch over to what I jokingly refer to as the dark side, like where, where you're not as, uh, you're, I mean, you're coherent to the world and you see what's going on. You see the 
reality that the body is more than just a couple of chemical reactions. There's more to it. And you have to look deeply because, I mean, there are times where I've walked out of my clinic at night. And I'm just like, what am I going to do? I think I've tried everything. There's got to be something else. And then it's a phone call to another doctor and another doctor, another doctor. When I say doctors, I mean, people in this space, like, have you seen this? What have you done? It's research papers. It's what is, what is it that am I missing? And what strategy can we figure out? I just tell people there is a strategy that will work. You're alive. So there is one that's going to get you to, to feel some vitality. We've just got to get it figured out. And, and our, our healthcare system is simply designed for acute management, quick care, and, and that's it. And there's no time left for thought or creativity or development. It is quick care, robotic nature. And, and, and I hope you're right. I hope this system is about to be broken or fall apart because the the population at least the population i see and i'm I'm in this vortex of people that care and i talk to clients that care and you know people don't call me going out and eating fast food they call me and they already are eating healthy so like changing diet and educating on you know drink clean water don't eat processed food is, is not even something i think about it it's like secondhand knowledge to me now um and sometimes i have to break myself down especially when i'm on podcast for people that aren't in this this area as often um i'm like oh yeah people don't know that eating processed food means you're eating stuff full of chemicals and mold right so i'm hoping this 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 system will collapse and there will be a change because that's what it's going to take or we're going to continue normalizing obesity and fatigue and diabetes and high blood pressure as completely normal we are normalizing everything 75 percent of our population is chronically ill 75 percent which means that now common place is being sick normal healthy is the minority yeah that's a damn shame and i'm there with you i need to make a flag and hang it behind me death to the healthcare system <laughs> for a lot of other things too death to this crazy government mandating and all that well, we don't have to go there everyone has their opinions and we respect yeah. it but um you know it, it's just we're living in a, a very emergent time i feel like um where people are starting to realize what's been in place is no longer working and hopefully we work towards more solutions finding the root cause looking at the environment um, focusing on health and wellness and the importance of not eating processed foods and exercising. All that goes with it. And I highly encourage you to listen to our latest last two episodes. They are with Chris Newby, who wrote the book Bitten, which I'm sure you're familiar mm -hmm. yep. um, with Lyme being a biological weapon um, that they were testing in, I don't know, the 1950s, I guess. Um, and then we also had an interview with Dr. David Lewis on sewage sludge it's like when we think about our problems today, this is like a major, major disaster problem that no one is talking about and no one is focusing on. <laughs> if someone did want to be treated by you or, or wanted to consult with your, your group, where can they find you? Yeah, so I'm super creative with my things. Dr. Jabin Moore on Facebook, Instagram, and website. We tried to keep it really simple. 
uh, no cool names, just Dr. Jabin Moore. My name is spelled J-A-B-A-N for those out there, because I know it's a little different. And uh, you can just find us in any of those places and we'll get back to you and, and take care of you. We put out free content constantly trying to educate on this these topics that we've talked about today because knowledge is power. The more we know, the more we can control in our own environments, our own life. Thank you again for joining us today. It, it was just a really great conversation. And, you know, the whole idea behind exposing mold, we created this platform because we know that people are extremely sick with mold mm -hmm. issues and, you know, information is scattered everywhere. And when you're sick, your brain is not functioning properly. We had a conversation with a neuropsychiatrist that said being exposed to toxic mold actually creates traumatic brain injuries. And so that can be validated through objective evidence. We wanted to create this platform to bring that information, to bring the trusted experts forward who actually know what they're doing and who are not just telling you that you're crazy and this is a scam and all that um, because it is a real thing. And so we really wanted to validate that. And we're not doctors. We're, I guess I'm going to take this from Chris Newby. She said on our podcast the other day, we're citizen scientists. I think that that's going to be the new revolution as well. People who want to get to the bottom of things, we're going to have to find our own private funding and we're going to have to do our own research to validate these things because we're not getting it from the NIH. We're not getting it from the CDC. This money is not being allocated to, to Lyme, even though we all know Lyme is an issue. You know, the budget is very tiny. Um, and so we, we really need to look into these things that are plaguing our population. Dr. Moore, we really appreciate you coming on the show. Um, please like, share, comment on our content. Check out our our GoFundMe and Patreon pages to keep this podcast rolling. Thank you again, everyone. We'll see you next time.